Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Before we dive in, I'd just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. They have helped over 70,000 customers be pension confident by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. They also have a great Sharia compliant pension option as well, which is why we personally really like them. And you can check out a review of their offering on the Sharia side on our website. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to IFG's podcast. This is Ibrahim Khan and with me you have Muhammad Al-Talib who's our investment associate at our angel syndicate IFG.vc and Muhammad Ashur, our brilliant guest all the way from Canada who has been farming halal insects or is working towards farming halal insects on an industrial scale in the coming months. And we've already done a podcast with Muhammad, an absolutely brilliant story that we heard there. Lots of lessons there. But Muhammad, today I wanted to just talk to you a bit more about your fundraising journey, because that's such an important, I guess, ingredient to a successful business these days, particularly if you go down the kind of startup business. I'd love to hear your experiences, I guess, first, and then maybe some tips and tricks that you can impart onto other people so they'll be fundraising away. Yeah, for sure. No, Jazakallah here for having me, and it's a pleasure sharing some of this experience I've had largely because I've made pretty much every mistake in the book, so it would pain me for others to make the same mistakes. I hope they can make novel mistakes, and they can then share the lessons they've learned. Very quickly about myself, for those who didn't listen to the other podcast, as Ibrahim mentioned, Alhamdulillah, I co-founded and started a company called Aspire Food Group back in 2013, and we had a very unusual start to our business from a fundraising standpoint because, Alhamdulillah, we actually participated in a global business competition, and the end result of that competition is that we actually won a million dollars in seed capital, and that was actually non-dilutive, meaning we didn't have to give up any equity for that funding. No, alhamdulillah, it wasn't bad. Although our business model is quite CapEx intensive and very R&D intensive. So believe it or not, a million dollars in hindsight was really just kind of a drop in the bucket. And we've since needed and alhamdulillah successfully raised significantly more funding in the tens of millions of dollars. And inshallah, in the coming months, we'll provide some more context and color around sort of the tally of what we've raised and what those investments have led to over the years. 
unfortunately, believe it or not, throughout pretty much that entire time frame, I did not have the benefit of having a sort of classic CFO on board. And by that, I mean someone who really has that sort of investment banking background, someone with the Rolodex, the connection, someone who basically manages the entire process from when you meet with the investors until hopefully an investment is negotiated and successfully executed, which meant that I really had to learn a lot of this by myself. And I think this is actually a really important and hopefully validating lesson to a lot of entrepreneurs that you really don't need to have very sophisticated financial chops to be able to get investors excited about your business. In the end of the day, your job is to sell the business full stop. And if you're successful in selling the business to customers, you're going to get a purchase order. If you're successful in selling your business to investors, you're hopefully going to get an investment. And oftentimes the investors aren't necessarily interested in you being too financially savvy. They just want to know that you really understand your business well. They understand your market very well and that your business really has very attractive metrics. So just to give you some context, we've raised money through a seed round of financing, series A round of financing, a series B round of financing, arguably a series B2 now going into a series C. So I've now dealt with investors that range from kind of your angel investors, very, very early stage stuff. You sit on a coffee shop and you tell them your business model and they write you a term sheet on the back of a napkin type of mythology that you hear of, all the way to the large private equity groups that are looking for their 25% IRR, five-year payback period, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm happy to talk through that, but I figured for today, maybe a good structure, and we'll see how much we can cover, but a good structure would be to start with what do you need to do before you even pitch to an investor? I think that is arguably the most important part of the work, and it doesn't involve pitching to anyone. And then during the pitch, what are some things you should consider? And is completely beyond the scope of our conversation today. And I know you've done a lot of work on this, Ibrahim, and others, and it's fantastic work, so there's no need to rehash it, but you can certainly link to the coaching on how to pitch and what to do in your pitch. But we're not going to talk about that. What I want to talk about more is what are some of the specific logistical things you should do during your pitching to understand the right fit between you and this potential investor. And then finally, after you've pitched and how do you follow up and how do you kind of go through that dance process with the investor until hopefully you're either able to get them to a quick yes or to a quick no, which, I mean, I think the golden rule for anyone raising capital is your time is not just money. It's money that is running out and being burned very quickly. So you just don't have the bandwidth to spin your wheels with too many investors and to waste a lot of your time and your management team's time. So your job as CEO or founder is to protect the time of your management team. They have to be focused on the ground. Oftentimes, when you're fundraising, it's either because you are doing really, really well and you need to grow quickly, or things are actually going poorly and you're running out of cash, and now you need this capital to really kind of give you that lifeline. In either way, your executive team, their heads are down. They have to execute either against massive growth or against potential catastrophic issues. And you just can't afford to have them waste their time talking to investors and due diligence and all these things if the prospect of an investment is actually quite low. So you have to be the gatekeeper to your team and you have to protect your team's time by really making sure that you're only bringing into the fold investors that have that high probability of a yes. And I think that's the other thing to keep in mind, which is Ideally, your desired outcome is to get an investor to give you a quick yes 
But if you can't get there, then your second best option is to get them to a quick no. The worst type of investor is the investor who keeps dragging their feet. It's like, yeah, you're great, Raheem. I really like you. You're a great guy. You're a charismatic CEO. I really believe in the man. And I think your concept is interesting, but I still need to get around this one thing. So why don't we touch base in two weeks and have another follow-up call and talk about that, right? And that's the other thing. One of the biggest poison pills for the CEO is false hope. And the problem with CEOs and founders is that one of your biggest superpowers is your unfailing, sometimes exuberant and irrational optimism. And yet when it comes to raising capital, this is where you have to challenge yourself to not drink your own Kool-Aid and to be very skeptical and to try to almost change your personality to be erring on the side that this is actually going to fail because you just can't afford to put so much hope into one deal or one investor, it falls through, and then you really end up with a monumental problem. That all makes sense. Just for my own curiosity, how would you deal with someone who says that? Or would you go into that later on? I'm going to get to that. Yeah, so let's talk about before the pitch. So part one, before the pitch. So the first thing you need to do is you need to actually make sure that you know what your business needs, right? It's pretty bizarre how many times people will go out and raise like $5 million just because it's like a nice round number and it's customary that a Series A should be between 5 and $10 million. Like, does your business need $5 million? Does it need $1 million? So there has to just be some very basic housekeeping that you need to do to really understand your own projections, your assumptions. What do you need the money for? What is the money going to be spent on? How long will that money last? What kind of headcount, which, by the way, are the very questions you're going to have to answer during your due diligence with an investor. And you just can't be making that stuff up as you go. So it will do you and your team a huge favor to really understand how much do you need. And often it's not a bad idea to build out three scenarios. So scenario A, this is how much we need just to keep the lights on for another six months to 12 months. Right. That's not what you're going to go out and raise. But this is what you know in the back of your mind. If you're able to at least close this much, you're in okay shape. The mid case is this is an amount that really allows us to hit our key milestones of growth to get to the next stage that we need to. And then the final one would be this is how much we need plus a buffer to allow us for some growth and some incremental kind of investments in areas that would be aspirational and desirable but are not totally necessary. And so that gives you kind of a range. It's kind of like when you start a fundraising campaign or whatever. You have your goal, but you have your stretch goal. So that way, when you go out and you raise money, you're able to talk to investors and you go with the base range. If you find that you're getting an enormous amount of investor traction, you can always stretch it out and raise more money. But what you don't want to do is you don't want to start with such a high number, turn off a whole bunch of investors, and then by the time you realize you need to tone it down, it's already too late and you've already burnt 80% of your leads and it's very awkward to go to an investor and say, hey, remember how like two months ago we talked and you loved our business, but you got freaked out because we were asking for five million? Well, guess what? We can now accomplish everything for just one million dollars. I mean, you lose so much credibility when you do that, right? So it's important to calibrate your ask according to what is actually necessary. And I had that happen to me once over the course of about 15 minutes on a WhatsApp call where the guy was asking for, I think, something like two million and then eventually you decided 250K is fine. Needless to say, I didn't invest. Yeah. What freaked you out the most about that? Wasn't it just that, wow, like either you guys were really, really poor 
in your projections before, or you suddenly became very competent? (laughs) (laughs) It was so many different things. I think it was the approach via WhatsApp. I think email and phone etiquette is so important. If you send in like a pitch, then just wait for a response. Don't also like somehow find the person's WhatsApp and just drop an email saying, can we, let's do this and let's set up a call. You have to kind of, in a way, it's like courting, isn't it? Or where you go to see the other side, you can't move too quickly. There's a set process. There is. You have to go through it. And the most important thing along the entire process is managing your reputation and your credibility. Because oftentimes, by the first time an investor meets you, they don't know your business, but they're getting to know you, and you are a window into the values and culture of your own company. So if as a startup founder who's raising money, you're exhibiting traits that suggest you don't have credibility, you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants, you're a little bit desperate, you're a little bit pushy. These things, unfortunately, translate into a personality profile of your very company because, I mean, after all, most startups, whether we agree or disagree, the fact of the matter is they do take after the personalities of their people, and oftentimes in the early stages, the founder is a huge quotient of that personality. It's also not doing your company a favor either, and you have to understand that you're an ambassador and a window into this vessel that you're representing. I think an important thing is understand that your credibility is everything. So if you're going to put numbers on a presentation, if you're going to claim any numbers, any facts, any statistics, whether it's your total addressable market, how many customers you have, your pipeline, whatever the case is, do your homework. Don't use numbers that are sloppy. Don't use numbers that are so outrageously, like there's five research institutes out there that have done a market sizing of your market. Four of them say that your market is worth a billion dollars and only obscure one based out of some middle of nowhere institute says that it's worth a hundred billion. And that's the one that you cite, right? That stuff can really erode your credibility when investors inevitably do their homework. You could do an average of all of them, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think that's really, really key to make sure you have your numbers and you really know your numbers because investors, depending on the kind, some are super high level. Some will ask you technical questions on the very first call. So it's awkward when you say, I'm not sure, or let me get back to you or let me pull out. And again, if you need a specific number and you know how to locate it quickly, that's fine. But if an investor tells you like, okay, Mohammed, you want to build this facility, What's the revenue expectation in year one? What's the EBITDA? I mean, you should know that stuff in your sleep. If you need to go look that up, then that means you're not really connected to the project as intimately as you should. And again, that's another indicator of your leadership style and so on. The next thing is to identify gaps in your team. Remember, we haven't even talked to an investor yet. This is just the pre-work. So now that you know you're working backwards from, okay, here's the next stage we want to grow to. To get there, we need financial capital in the form of this amount of money and human capital in the form of this talent that we currently lack. So a good exercise would be for you to identify what new hires you think you're going to need to make, especially senior hires. And it's perfectly okay to go to an investor and make it clear that your team today, although consists of rock stars, is simply not adequate to fulfill the requirements to get to this next stage. In fact, investors love that. And oftentimes, if they're the right one, they'll actually really help you get those right people on board. And then I would say the final thing is make sure your materials are ready. Don't wait until you're halfway through the investment process to set up data room. So have your pitch deck, have your financial model, have some people look at it and do yourself a favor. Always produce a non-confidential version of your pitch deck. 
Yes, it's true that you can ask investors to sign an NDA, and some of them will oblige you, although increasingly many will not, and not because they are trying to act in bad faith, knowing that they are going to be broadcasting your business model, but because they just see hundreds of these things all the time. If they sign an NDA, it's not practical, especially if you're in a very niche area where, let's say, you're in fintech or something. I mean, there's only a handful of specific VCs at that level, and they probably have seen every company. So just try to avoid that drama entirely. And if you're really concerned that you have something proprietary, just get rid of it. Produce a deck that if it ended up on the front page of whatever, some major newspaper, you wouldn't feel like, oh, man, the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. So that's you preparing your story and your business for fundraising. The next thing you need to do is you need to identify the type of, I mean, again, you brought up the example of courting. I mean, there's actually a lot of astonishing commonalities, like you're trying to get married. Well, what do you do? You get your house in order, right? Make sure that you're a compelling enough groom for a bride, right? That's the first thing you need to do. Then the next thing you need to do is you need to sit down and be very honest about what is the type of bride that is suitable to you today, right? Are you looking for a specific culture, ethnicity, background, education, whatever? But you need to figure that out. So in the case of a startup, are you looking for an early stage investor, a venture capital investor, a private equity investor? Are you looking for someone who writes very small checks, very big checks? Are you looking for someone who's known to lead rounds or who's known to be a follow-on investor? Are you looking for someone who's a generalist venture capital fund or someone who's focused on enterprise software or fintech? And by the way, the more specific you can get, if you can be, the better it is for you. The biggest mistake I find a lot of entrepreneurs make, and I've made this mistake repeatedly, is when you're in fundraising mode, and you're passionate about what you do, you'll talk to anybody, right? So you'll just accept a conversation with every investor, and you will pitch every investor. Again, the challenge here is you're going to get a lot of people interested, but you're also not creating a good vetting process by which to shortlist the people who are really high potential. So everybody will tell you, you talk to an investor, I've never met an investor who says, well, that's not true. There's been a few who have been pretty disciplined, but in general, most investors you talk to will say things like, we're pretty stage agnostic and sector agnostic, so we really just like to believe in teams and management teams. And that tends to be true for angel investors, because an angel investor at this point is really just investing in a team and an idea. Whereas when you get to venture capital, especially like Series A, Series B, it's no longer an investment in just a team or an idea. Now there's really a business model that's starting to be proven out, And you need this investor to be someone who can help take it to the next level. So you want an investor who has the subject matter expertise to help you in this area. And you would be doing yourself a huge disservice to be talking to a wide range of investors when a handful of them out the gate would never be a good fit. Like you should not be talking to a private equity investor ever if you're still a startup with one founder and like one part-time employee in your very early stages. It doesn't matter how much they love you and care about you. Their mandate is to invest in cash flow positive businesses or at least businesses that have a very clear line of sight to generating positive cash flow. You are like five to six years away from that. So it's nice to network, but you have to draw the line between casual networking and a serious investment of your time and effort to try to get an investor to say yes when their very modus operandi is designed to say no, not because 
you're not a very smart or capable founder because there's a huge mismatch in the stage. So don't mess that up. That can be a huge time drain, and I think it's a simple exercise. And oftentimes, if it's a good, reputable investment group, they say plainly on their website what their sweet spot is. Who do they like to invest in? And if they don't say it, go look at their portfolio. Do the companies in their portfolio look like your company? Are they in the same stage as your company? They seem to have raised the same amount that you're looking to raise. That can give you a really good clue. But we'll talk about very specific ways to do this in the when you pitch part. Just a couple of more points here before we move on to that. So once you've identified the right stage, whether angel, early, VC, private equity, and the right sector, fintech, healthcare, food, whatever, and you've created your short list of investment funds that you think are really in the sweet spot of where your company is, try to get warm introductions as much as possible. This is where LinkedIn can become very helpful. Every one of us, we find someone that we really, really want to connect to on LinkedIn, and then Amazingly, we find that we have a mutual connection, but to someone we don't even know ourselves, someone that we should have, we must have added years ago. And this is the time to go to those people and say, hi, first of all, it's great that you're in my network, although I don't know that we've really had much of an interaction. That said, can I ask you a favor and would you kindly introduce me to the so-and-so? I've actually done that a couple of times, Mogul. I've added an extra step, which is I've actually asked them for a call. I've used that 20 minutes to introduce myself and learn about them, but also to let them know what we're doing. That way, when I ask them for the favor to introduce me to that investor who happens to be a mutual connection, they're happily motivated to do so. So try as much as possible to get as many warm introductions because just nothing beats a warm intro. If that's not possible, there's a handful of different ways, and I've used all of them, right? except for the WhatsApp method. I don't do that and I don't recommend that. You obviously, oftentimes they'll just have their email address on their website or wherever and you can just email them directly. And usually you want to email ideally a managing partner or managing director level person. Although yes, there's associates who, their job is to go out and get opportunities and deals. And I can talk about the politics of this stuff from my experience too. But I just find that if you can get to a decision maker right away, it at least gives you the right audience. That way they can tell you out the gate whether or not this conversation is going to go somewhere or nowhere. Whereas associates and kind of more investment analyst positions within funds, it's not really their say. In some cases, they're actually empowered to make those calls, but oftentimes their job is just to find really cool opportunities and kind of move them up the funnel for the decision makers to decide whether to pursue them or not to pursue them. I don't know if that's been your experience either, Ibrahim, but that's kind of been mine. No, I agree with you on that. One thing, and perhaps, Muhammad, this might be an interesting one for you to, I guess, chime in on, is whilst you're in this kind of prep phase, how are your team dynamics vis-a-vis the workload that you were previously lifting? Yeah, so I think that you really have to be very surgical about what you want from whom on your team. So, for example, if we're about to get into a technical due diligence with an investor who wants to look at our technology and would like to speak to our CTO or whatever the case is, up front, I make it clear to the team that, hey, guys, here's where we are in the process. In the very beginning, I'm not going to need anything from anybody. I'm going to try to get us an excited investor and get them to a point where they're going to conduct due diligence. Once we're at that point, now... I'm going to need from you this thing and from you this thing and from you that thing. Now, as far as the preparation stuff, it depends. I mean, depending on the stage and the time, 
I've either used the team's support on, let's say, building the investment deck. So I need a couple of slides from you. And they don't have to be designed. You can get someone to design them, but at least you get the content and the substance from your team. And a lot of that heavy lifting you're going to do yourself. And the other cool thing is there's a lot of fractional resources you can employ. So I've done the thing where I went out and actually hired a really good financial investment firm to actually build our financial model because I didn't have the capability to build something very advanced and sophisticated that kind of shows the different variables of our business and the core assumptions and how they all impact our projections. So I was able to go and literally spend a couple hours describing the business and the key assumptions, and then someone was able to build that into a really robust model on Excel, which then became a really good tool for our management team moving forward. So you don't have to try to learn how to do everything yourself nor do you have to burden your management team to do it. Sometimes the proper expertise can exist fractionally and for a very modest cost outside of your company. I've used that a lot for financial stuff and for design services. I mean, first impressions are everything. Design matters. Aesthetics matters. Your deck has to look nice and crisp. And you just can't be committing any of those sins of PowerPoint that we all know too well, right? Like too many blocks of text, just all that stuff that I'm sure everybody is keenly aware of. Unfortunately, you have to do most of the heavy lifting because you have to understand that you're the director of this movie. You're the maestro of this. Like You really have to conduct this thing from start to finish, and it's your story that you're telling. And you have a window into the investor and their mood and kind of what angle to approach them from. So source the information and the way to present it as you need along the way. But your team should be there to support that, not in an overwhelmed capacity, but in a very specific capacity. Makes sense. Mohammed, any other questions or should we dive into the actual process of the contact with the investor? Yeah, just quickly added to that point. So I understood that you're fundraising mostly and your team can help you sometimes. What about the other way around? Obviously, you are putting some tasks as a CEO and working with operations. And now you're relieved from that task because you're focusing on fundraising. How does your team take over your tasks that you used to do, or how do you prepare them for those tasks? Yeah, I mean, I don't know that you're going to like what I'm going to say here, but I'm just going to say it anyway. I think when you're fundraising, you just have to accept that your workload is going to increase for that period of time. So you're not dropping the ball, and you're not abandoning your other responsibilities. You're just unfortunately working more during those months. And honestly, you're going to spend the time anyway. I mean, When you're in fundraising mode, again, it's because you need money to pour rocket fuel on your business or you need money to rescue your business. Either way, sleep is going to be challenging at night. And so rather than just being up and looking at the wall, those are the hours where you actually get your work done. And during the day, you're fundraising. And again, look, it's very different from startup to startup. Like oftentimes the CEO or the founder is the person doing the fundraising because generally they're the best spokesperson and they're the best sort of salesperson for the opportunity. But I've actually seen companies where it's one other C-suite person that's doing the fundraising because they just happen to be far more compelling at telling the story. So don't take what I'm saying to apply universally across the board by any stretch. But my point is you just can't abandon your duties as CEO in lieu of fundraising or vice versa. And it does have to get done. And again, the problem, especially, and I'm most sympathetic to the companies, like very honestly and candidly speaking, with the exception of once in the Five times I've raised capital in the last seven years. Only once was it that kind of like exciting growth aspect. Almost every other time it was to plug a hole. Like we're burning through cash and we need more cash to kind of keep things going. And that is very stressful stuff. It's very stressful on your team because 
Everybody is keenly and acutely aware of the dire situation. And of course, it also challenges the leverage in the negotiations with investors because to your point, Ibrahim, although you obviously don't want to play your hand and you don't want to seem desperate, on the flip side, if you're running out of cash in four months, you're running out of cash in four months. Like you can't be cute. So you got to also take the bull by the horns and, and get a little bit more assertive in your process. And that's why I can totally be sympathetic to a very pushy entrepreneur. Even if I don't like that pushiness, I can just then give them what they want, which is a quick yes or a quick no. And that way, at least they don't have to worry about one more loose end. They can now put their energy into the few other areas. So I think that, yes, the overall team has to step up during this period, but it also just happens to be a high workload and high stress period. And that's the reality of being an entrepreneur. I can't remember. I think it was Ben Hurwitz who said that, or Mark Andreessen who said something like, an entrepreneur has only two emotions, euphoria and depression. So I think that's just part of the reality. I hear you on all of that. Because we're so early in our journey, we've only fundraised once. There was a lot of excitement at the time. First fundraiser is the easy fundraiser, right? Where, where we actually did commit the cardinal sin of using a cheeky PowerPoint. And I blame Mohsin for that because Mohsin said, oh, I don't particularly care about aesthetics and all that sort of thing. But I think if we did raise in the future, we'd get someone on it to make it look good. Because having looked at decks so many times, the things that are in your control, the incremental things that add up, why not play them to your advantage? Because those are the things that you actually can do something about. And it is very true that aesthetically pleasing deck is better than a non-aesthetically pleasing deck. And an aesthetically pleasing deck that actually really clearly says what you're after is ideal. But let me stop at this point and get you back onto your story of entering into the gladiator's pit in front of the investor. What happens there? Yeah, so I think one thing that I learned, and this is an insight that I'm really, really proud of in hindsight. Man, I just wish I'd done this much, much, much earlier in the process. So typically what happens is you end up with the introductory call. So assuming you found the right shortlist of investors, you got a couple of warm intros and you get that exciting email in your inbox the next morning that says, yes, happy to do an intro call. My assistant, whatever is going to help us find a time. So now you have that call. Now, you don't need to give your elevator pitch because the person presumably now has seen your deck which you've enclosed during that introduction or what have you. And I'm happy to talk about that, like the process of being introduced. But generally speaking, it's not always the case, but generally, if someone's going to make a warm intro on your behalf, they're usually going to say, okay, Ibrahim, I'm happy to introduce you to so-and-so who's my friend that you're clearly interested in talking to as an investor. Do me a favor. Can you send me like a short paragraph about you and your company and just something about you or send me a deck or something that I can forward along? So by the time this person says yes to speaking with you, Hopefully it's because they've literally read one paragraph or they've at least perused your deck and on a cursory glance, they like what they see. It's you're starting at a good place. That doesn't mean that it's a yes, but it just means that they're warmed up to the idea. But what I mean by that is you don't have to feel like you need to rush to get everything off your chest in two minutes, right? This person's giving you half an hour of their time. So take your time to tell your story in the most compelling possible way. But here's the mistake I used to make. When you start the introductory call, the investor is typically like, hi, it's nice to speak with you. I'd love to learn more about your business and see how we can help and if there's a fit. And that basically is the cue for you to extemporaneously pitch for 15 minutes, right? (laughs) And why that's a mistake is because I've done that so many times where at the end of my presentation, the person on the other line is like, wow, this is very impressive. You guys are clearly doing something cool. 
Unfortunately, our fund actually doesn't do anything like this. I mean, we only focus on late stage businesses with cash flow, right? And so there's this like, wah, 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 like you just feel like you just wasted all this time and energy. And to be honest, like you have to look at it too as it sucks a lot of life out of you because every time you pitch, you have to keep a certain energy, a certain passion, a yeah. certain excitement. You just can't do that all the time every day and put yourself in the position of giving a lot of avoidable no's, which deflate you. It's like you're withdrawing these credits out of your limited accounts, make them count. The trick that I've employed is actually a very simple one, and it's to reverse roles. In the very beginning of the call, to actually, as much as possible, try to politely take control of the call. Hi, so-and-so, it's a pleasure. I'm glad we connected. I'd love to tell you more about Aspire on this call, but before I do that, I'd love to learn more about your fund and more about yourself. So now you're actually asking them in a sense, to pitch you, right? Now, they're not going to pitch you because they don't need to, but at least they're going to now share a lot of information about who they are, what they're looking at. And not only that, but when they're done, you can ask them, there's three questions I ask, and it's appropriate to ask because they just finished speaking, so they raised a few questions. And one of those questions is, what business is your sweet spot? Like what investment opportunity would you say is your sweet spot? And this almost always is like the telltale answer as to whether or not you should give your 15 minute bells and whistles speech or if you should just give them like your five minute spiel because this is going to go nowhere, right? And usually they'll say, we like to look at series A businesses that are doing three to four million in revenue a year and have a line of sites cash flow. Well, if your business is still pre-revenue, don't bother. This is a point I really want to make. You're welcome to take risks, right? Like someone might listen to this and say, I don't buy that. I think my business is so compelling. It's so different. It's so unique that they will break their own rule and invest in me. And you know what? Maybe you're right. Maybe it will happen that one in a thousand times. But do you really want to go and have a thousand conversations with a thousand investors on the off chance that you'll land that one? Or do you want to go and have 20 conversations with investors, all of whom are in your sweet spot where there's a much higher probability? So again, it's about managing your energy and your time, especially if this is happening during a stressful period where you don't have time to be cute. You don't have time for these kind of protracted courting games. And you definitely don't want to be selling an investor, not just on your business, but on why they should change their very fund to accommodate your business. That's a really, really tough sell. Even for the best entrepreneurs, it's not usually a successful one. The second question I ask is, what are some of the most recent deals you've done in the last 12 months? The way they answer this question gives you two really important insights. One, the frequency of their deal flow. So this tells you kind of how much cash are they really deploying and how active are they as investors? Because there are some investors that will do 10 deals a year, some that will do one deal a year, depending on how active the fund is. And it'll also tell you what kind of deal structure they like. Do they like to lead? Do they like to follow? Do they like to do debt, equity, combination of both? So it gives you a bit more idea in the mechanics of how they are. And the last question, and this is really helpful, especially if time is not on your side, is what is your typical timeline? to funding a deal. So you're asking the investor is to literally give you a sense of from the time we're having this introductory call until the time you sign a check, how long does that typically take you? And some of them will tell you, look, we move very quickly. Like we've had situations before where we funded within four weeks of our very first meeting with the entrepreneur. And some that will tell you, look, 
we have a process and an investment committee and an oversight committee and a blah, blah, blah. And it usually takes us about 90 days to 120 days. And remember, all of these are liberal estimates. Like it's always going to take longer than even the estimates they give you. So you got to almost multiply that, whatever they tell you, by a factor of like adding 50% to 100%. Like it could take double the time. And I'll tell you, every investor that's ever told me that it'll take them three to four weeks, they weren't insincere, but stuff happens. I mean, your legal review comes back slow. You have to come up with stuff. Stuff happens, right? So accept the fact that if you know your company's running out of cash in two months, you can't be talking to an investor that takes 90 days to make a decision, period. Even if they're great, the fact of the matter is it's just not a fit. That conversation with this investor, that five minutes they just spent and maybe the three extra minutes answering your questions is going to be so rich in terms of information to help you really decide, is this investor a good fit based on what deals they've done, based on their process and their timeline, and based on their sweet spot? And if the answer to those three questions is yes, Go all out pitching them your best possible pitch, telling them your full story. And if they're not, still give your best possible pitch, but just give them the five-minute version, not the 20-minute version. That way, you're still getting them excited about the business because you never know. Most people may not be your investor, but they might think of an introduction to make down the road. Maybe one day you exit your business, start another business that happens to be in their sweet spot. Reputation is really important, so don't just go around and send a signal to an investor that may be poorly misconstrued. So let me pause there, Brahim, and get your thoughts on that. I hear you on a lot of what you said. Primarily these days, we're on the other side of those calls. And it's quite rare, actually, to get a startup founder asking us the questions first. What are your thoughts on it, Mohammed? when that happens? I guess I'm quite neutral. I prefer, frankly, to not have to do that initially, because the same reasons why you ask them to pitch is the same reason why I don't want to pitch, which is like, is it even worth me putting in the effort pitching if I know for a fact that I'm not going to invest in this startup? But I guess it's actually more efficient because if the person has asked the question first and then he gives me a shorter spiel, then I can make sure I can give you a shorter spiel thereafter. So we'll end the the conversation about 20 minutes. What are your thoughts, Mohammed? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think it's also like a double-edged sword because if I like the company and the founder does that, that's a very big positive for me because it means the company is very confident. He has many options available and now I'm trying to get into the deal rather than him trying to take money from me. Whereas if I don't like the company and he's trying to almost like waste my time asking me, so what do you guys do? Then I'm like, ugh, it's almost like a further negative. But overall, I suppose if I don't like the company, I'm not going to invest in him anyway. So it's probably as good for you to do that. And yeah. it shows confidence. It shows you have many options, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, and I mean, I'll tell you from the times I've done that, it's never taken more than five minutes of the overall call. And again, you have to be artful about how you do it, right? Like, it's never like me interrogate. You have to tell me why I should listen to your fund, right? No, it's very much, it's a pleasure to meet with you. And I heard a lot about you. I mean, you obviously had a chance to receive my deck. I'd love to learn more about your fund. And I'm very excited to tell you about Aspire. But I'd love to hear about you and your fund. If you do it in a disarming way that really comes off as sincere, then it shouldn't be a nuisance. And anyway, you're not asking them to give you a biography. They get to choose how long they speak for. And some people have been like, look, we do this and this is our stage and this is what we do. And those are very specific questions that actually should elicit very specific and clear answers that aren't just dragged out and long-winded. But I hear you. I mean, I think every investor will be different. And it is possible that it could turn off an investor. But you know what? If an investor is going to be turned off by that, then maybe that kind of self-selects also, right? 
And to your point, Mohammed, I mean, if they already don't like your business, they don't even want to talk to you. I think also there's an onus on investors. And this is something I share a lot with a lot of colleagues and a lot of investors that I've gotten much closer with and much more friendly with over the years, which is the problem I think a lot of investors have, and people don't realize this, investors really are ultimately humans comprised of the same emotions and impulses as the rest of us. And so you could really like an entrepreneur, but you hate their business model, but you really like the entrepreneur themselves and you're kind of torn because you like talking to this person, you think they're really capable, and heck, maybe they'll actually pull this thing off that you don't really believe in as much. And so I've found that over the years, a lot of times investors just have a hard time saying no. Like they can't just politely say no. They just hope for it to kind of die on its own. And I've had that happen before. Like I've had investors that literally, no matter what, they'll just never say no. And it's amazing because they're like angel investors. And until today, they'll write to me. <laughs> it's like I know for a fact that we're way beyond that stage and they're still keeping this neutral tone, right? And I've had the worst thing before, which is an investor who just completely ghosted me, right? Like where you'd have a conversation, they get very excited about your business. And I think there should be a little bit more credit given to both sides that entrepreneurs have thick enough skin to handle rejection. And I think investors also can manage rejection in a way that is very polite. But I'll tell you my favorite conversations ever with investors aside from the ones that actually led to an investment, and I mean this sincerely, were the ones where within the half an hour of the call, the person says, man, I really like your business. I think you guys are great. This will never work for us. Like, it's just never going to work for this and this and this reason. But I'll tell you what, let's stay in touch. If I come across someone in my network who I think is a good fit, I'll send them your way. And if I don't, just like I very candidly told you it's not a good fit for us, I'm not going to waste your time with someone who isn't. Dude, like, that is amazing. I can't tell you the relief I felt to be able to confidently say X, like cross that person off my list and move on to the next one. Yeah. So it goes both ways. I hear you on that, Mohammed. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.